0: All right. Uh, this morning, let's take our Bibles again and turn to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. Am I loud enough on this? I'm not. I can't hear myself actually behind these speakers. Am I? Okay. Good. I just, I just with this new sound system, it's kind of like different. Uh, but um, Ephesians chapter one, and let's look at the Word of God this morning because. Um, Because it's encouraging. If you are discouraged, and do you ever get discouraged? I do. Um, And I get sometimes more than discouraged. I think I get uh, discouraged to the point where there's no word to define it. Uh, So if you're discouraged by your weaknesses, and even by your sins, well, today is the source of your confidence in this passage of Scripture. You and I are incomplete. You and I are imperfect. But genuine evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives really should keep us from doubting our salvation. It should keep us pressing on in the Lord. It should keep our hearts and our minds in a state of readiness. To praise God for what he has done and who he has called us to be. So, see, the word of God this morning is, is encouraging because God's not finished with us. He's not finished with his work, but someday he will be. So there are blessings we should enjoy as a result of being Christians. And we have been examining already in this text the believers' blessed possessions in Christ. We have seen already our blessing that comes from the Father. Uh, The Father has chosen us. The Father has adopted us, of course. uh, And the Father has accepted us. So for believers in Christ Jesus, that is definitely encouraging news. And now let me say once again, though, before we experience any kind of success at the practical level of Christianity. There must be a firm grip on the truth of God's Word. See, we need to understand who we are as a result of who God is, and then what He has done. We are in that equation. See, the problem is, is that we try to base our spiritual growth and maturity on practical sections of Scripture and spend little time internalizing the doctrinal sections. Sometimes we pass over those things. Khalif mentioned that also in Sunday school. Uh, and we didn't even talk about that. So, for example, in Ephesians, the book that we're in, chapters 1 through 3, reveal that we need to know, really what we need to know about God, what we need to know about ourselves, what we need to know about sin, and what we need to know about salvation. Chapters 4 through 6 describes what we need to do. What we need to do to live, live out our faith in our daily experience of life. All right? Now, if you reverse those, and you try to do the practical before the doctrinal, you're going to get into trouble. Matter of fact, the source sometimes of our discouragement is that we have done exactly that. So in our zeal to correct the problems in our lives, we skip the doctrinal, the first half, and we jump to the practical, the second half of God's Word. And the reason why is because we want a quick fix. We want a rule. We want uh, some two or three things to do to make my life different. More successful, and um, we try to put a, pan- a band aid on on uh, things to make ourselves better, and uh, we don't seem to be patient enough to go through the deep theological concepts of Scripture. We want a practical solution, and we want it now. That, of course, our our culture feeds that also. But see, a band aid quick fix approach to daily living just doesn't work. How can you hope to stand against the schemes of the devil in chapter 6 of Ephesians if you have not internalized that you are already victoriously raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? You cannot do it. You cannot stand up against Satan unless you are thinking doctrinally in your mind. Because that's where you're going to win the battle. Because you know who you are, you know who God is, you know what God's done, and so that's what you throw in his face. And in doing that, that's your armor. That's how you stand up. That's how you resist temptation. That's how you overcome sin. So, when your basic belief system about God and yourself is shaky, well, then your day-to-day behavior your day-to-day behavior system is also shaky. But when your belief system is intact and your relationship with God is based on truth, then you will have little trouble working out the practical aspects of daily Christianity. So, So far, we have established some very significant truths concerning what God has done in salvation. I mentioned the first one about what the Father has done, and then last week we looked at what the Son had done. He what he has done is we have redemption. We're bought from the slave market of sin. He purchased us. We have forgiveness, complete forgiveness of all sin. For those who believe in Christ, and then we have been given discernment concerning the goal of God's plan, the goal of history. We Christians have that understanding, that knowledge, and that's encouraging because we know what God's doing. We know what He's up to, uh, and so therefore I don't have to guess at that. I know that. So we who are saints, who are faithful, who are in Christ, we who are chosen who have been adopted, who have been accepted in the beloved. It is us that the Lord has blessed and given us this encouragement in the word of God. So let me remind you that at the fall of man, when our first parents fell into sin and rebellion against God, Adam and Eve had their understanding darkened. And that darkened understanding has passed on to us. Not only was their understanding darkened, but they... Immediately were cast into an identity crisis. They lost their identity. They lost who they were because they sinned and rebelled against God and were cast out. They were utterly in confusion. It was Neil T. Anderson who said, "As believers, we are not trying to become saints. we are saints who are becoming like Christ." So some of the byproducts of the fall of man upon his descendants, is mankind became fearful. Mankind became filled with shame and guilt. And then mankind also became depressed and angry. We, we find all those things in the, the first four chapters of Genesis. So the long-term effects of, of those things, of sin, left mankind with really three continuous daily needs. And you find this all over the place. Acceptance was replaced by rejection. Therefore, the need of man was to belong to something. A second thing was they lost innocence, was replaced by guilt and shame, and so therefore they need to be cleansed eternally, internally, and then, of course, they need a new identity. And, of course, in scripture, knowing who you are as a child of God and the growth that you should uh, experience in Christ-likeness is part of filling that gap. And then also the dominion was replaced by weakness and helplessness. So therefore, we have a need for knowledge. We have a need for true knowledge. We have a need to be to have strength and power to live for God. We have those needs. So those needs actually were met in Christ when he redeemed us, when he completely forgiven us, taking care of the guilt, and when he gives us the sermon, true knowledge, to have dominion again over the things that we should as human beings. The authority we have from God to live and the stance that we take against our enemies, especially our spiritual enemies. So with that said, our study of Ephesians I have already stated the Father's plan and the Son's provision in salvation. Now, this morning, I would like to move on to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's activities in salvation. Now, we have been given, according to verse number 11, it says, Also we have obtained an inheritance... That word inheritance, we have been given as believers an inheritance. And I'm not going to spend time on that particular word. But we have been given an inheritance in Christ. And today, we need to get a grip on the truth of our inheritance. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to see the foundation of which our inheritance is obtained and then also the process by which it is acquired, and then the person by which our inheritance is secured. And so this morning, let us look at verse number 11 through 14 and see our blessings that come from the Holy Spirit. Now we have the Father, we have the Son, and now we have the Holy Spirit in this context. Very clearly laid out uh, for us. It doesn't say Trinity, but... The Holy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are clearly here in this text. So here in verses 11 through 14, we see something of the way in which God is working out His plan of restoration, of harmony in every realm of and every sphere of the cosmos. So the foundation on which our inheritance is obtained if you look at verse number 11, I want to point something out, out to you in verse 11 and then in verse number 13, and it's this, that in verse number 11, there's two important uh, phrases. In verse 11, in him, it says, also we have obtained an inheritance. The word we, all right? And then in verse number 13, it says, in him, you also. So he goes from the we to the you. And, of course, the we represents the Jews, and the you represents the Gentiles. Now, he wants to lay that out for us because he's going to deal with it more in chapter 2. So, see, the Jews were the first Christians, even when the Lord said to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Spirit to come upon you, and then when he does, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem. That means in, this, in the, the realm or the sphere in which Jewish people live, you're going to bring the gospel to them first. And even Paul wrote in Romans chapter one that, listen, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile, all right? So that means it, the gospel went first first to the Jews. And the Jews were the one who had, who had hope in the Messiah. They were the ones who um, were anticipating the Messiah somewhat. All right? So then the gospel was brought to the Gentiles. Now if you look over to chapter 2 of Ephesians, and notice verse 11 through 14, he begins to bared this out, and it says there, I just want to read it to you, just, just to give you a heads up on it. It says, therefore, in verse number 11, chapter 2, remember that formerly you, and then it says, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of their dividing wall. And then Paul, later on in, in Romans chapter 1 says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith or the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So see, what, is God, what God is doing is breaking down these walls that were built up between these two groups of people because the, the Jews thought they were exclusive and that they were the only ones who were in God's favor and could be saved. And the Gentiles, they didn't know anything about God, not the God of the Hebrew God. And so therefore, the Lord says, listen, because of this division, I'm going to break down the wall that separates you, and I am going to, another way, you see God's way of restoring harmony and unity is to produce Christians. That's how he does it. How is God going to restore harmony and unity? He's going to take both Jews and Gentiles who can now be redeemed and reconciled to God and one another by the blood of Christ. So that's what the Lord is doing. Now he's going to deal with that in chapter 2. But let's let's go back to chapter 1 again. Our text in Ephesians 1.11, it says, and we received an inheritance. It could be translated also, in whom we have been made a heritage, two thoughts could be going on here. Number one, it could be that we have become God's inheritance uh that argues kind of for verse number thirteen, where it says, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So see, we have become God's inheritance. that's true, we have been. All right. It argues in verse number 13, which says we are marked by the seal of God. That mark, of course, is a mark of ownership. So therefore, God owns us. But it also could mean here that we have become heirs of God. And and of course, that's also true. And that argues verse number 14, where it says, "...who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession..." The praise of his glory. All right. In other words, that it argues the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance. So we are God's inheritance, and we also have become heirs of God. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17: if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ. Now, simply what that means is that. As co-heirs with Christ, we own everything. We own everything. Now, digest that for a minute. Try not to choke on that truth. We own everything. We are co-heirs with Christ. What Christ owns, we own. It was... That truth that, of course, should uh, enable us to praise the Lord. But I want you to notice, how did that happen? How does God do this? How does God give us such an inheritance? The foundation of our inheritance is really, it's God's plan. In verse number 11, it says this, Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So, this long Greek sentence lays out for us all things that reminds us of the fact that God is working out a great plan to head up in Christ the whole of the cosmos. And he includes us in it. He brings us into the equation. And the reason we become God's heritage is because our destiny, as his inheritance, was predetermined beforehand by him. So in eternity, God determined the lot he assigned us in time. Now, the words predestined, purpose, counsel, and will in that passage all have an intimate connection with one another. And there's really no clearer or more sublime statement anywhere in Scripture concerning the sovereignty of God in His plan. That running through the Bible, there are two parallel lines. One is God's sovereignty and the other is man's responsibility. They don't ever really meet. They meet in heaven, but they don't meet. And both things are taught in the Word of God, so we ought to, of course, believe both. So God who purposes is faithful to carry out his providential will in the life of the believer. Now, our lot has a purpose, both for Jew and Gentile, and the result of that purpose, the end result of that purpose is found in verse number 12. It says, to the end, that we who were first to hope, that's the Jews in Christ." would be to the praise of his glory. Now, this is the second time, and we're going to see it again in this passage, to the praise of his glory. So, the word of God is telling us, listen, the end result for salvation, the end result for saving the Jew and the Gentile is so those Jews and those Gentiles can praise god can give god glory now sometimes i know that i use that word and and we use that word and we sometimes find it difficult to, to figure out what it means what does it mean to glorify god what does it mean to bring glory to his name see god has really made us for his glory he made us that we ought to live for his glory. But the word glory in the Greek it means radiance or splendor or majesty. In the Hebrew which I believe the word is really getting its root from it means weightiness. It means importance. It means significance. So when we are called on to give glory to God we are really called on To treat God with weight, to treat Him with importance, to give more significance to Him than anything or anyone else. So, you know, we use the word man, that's heavy. That's the kind of expression we use. But when we consider God, sometimes we, we throw the name of the Lord around the name of God around too loosely without thinking about what we're saying and what we're doing, that when we think of God and what He has done, in this case, we're, we, we're kind of like in God's planning room uh, and God's kind of telling us what he's done, he's planned these things, he's predestined these things, he's purposed these things, without real explanation at this particular point, just getting us to see that, listen, what God has done has weight to it. He, he has thought about this seriously. He has, he has looked at it as only God can from every single vantage point. And so therefore, when we begin to think about what God has done and our own salvation in Christ Jesus, that we need to consider it with a significant amount of weight. And see, this is the things that human beings created in the image of God have not done. That's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and what? Sure fall short of the glory of god meaning what they haven't given god a place of significance they haven't considered god one who when he says something it has more weight than any other thing you've ever heard in your life we haven't done that and it was even john piper who said at this point this means that none of us has trusted and treasured god in the way that we should we have not been satisfied with his greatness. We had and, and walked in his ways. We we haven't really thought about it to the point it affects everything about the way we think and how we live. So see, our life, our salvation has purpose to it, and the end result in God's plan is for you and I to praise the praise God to bring God glory. So we have really just spent some time in eternity in, in the planning room of God, the planning room of our triune God. And uh, he doesn't spend time there because we don't understand everything that's going on there. And so the Lord brings it down to, to the practical realm. He brings it down to us. And he says, okay, that's the foundation of your inheritance. Now let's look at the process by which our inheritance is acquired. How do we get everything and own everything through Christ Jesus? How does that exactly happen? All right? And so this is what he brings uh, brings us to. He shows us how the Lord works out his grand and glorious plan in time, actually in the time in which you and I are living. In any time anyone lives, and here's the word of God, how does he do it? Well, You already know the answers because you've heard it so many times before. But look what it says in verse number 13. It says this, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed... Let me just stop right there. So here's the process. The process is this, the preaching of the message of truth. That's the process all right? And it includes two things. It includes listening, and it includes believing. So this is how God works out this grand plan. He's planned in eternity in time, that the Word of God is preached by people, All right, and that we understand from the Word of God that no one can live the Christian life without becoming a Christian. We have to be created in Christ Jesus before we can do any good works. In fact, look over to chapter 2 of Ephesians real quickly. Look at verse number 9 and 10. Again, I'm going to be heading there. But just looking at the passage, it says, not as a result of works, so that no no one may boast. Verse number 10 of Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So in other words, we can't even do good works that God considers good works unless we are already created in Christ Jesus. So only Christians can do good works. But how does that happen? How do I get into the plan of God? Well, the first thing is that I listen. It says after listening to what? To the message Alright, that's verse 13 of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So one has to hear. Now th- that's not too hard to understand. He, the Lord really brings it down to a very simple level. We all hear, don't we? We all have ears. Alright. We all in some way, even if we cannot hear, here, uh, God has a way of communicating to us. But nonetheless, you understand what it says when he says one has to hear. But what do they hear? They have to hear a particular truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to hear about his work, about who he is, about what he has done. So, see, God's way of making Christians is through the message of truth. You already know that. But there are many different messages proclaimed by the world as deliverance, which are false, which bring people to greater into greater bondage the christians must proclaim the gospel not self-helps not a political agenda as so many have done and given up the gospel but christ crucified and raised from the dead see the truth is the good news of what god has done for us in christ i.e. salvation, which is available as a result of what the Lord Jesus has already accomplished. So God's means for anyone to become a Christian is to first hear the truth. All right, Paul said it like this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. So it has to come in to your ears. That means this. It's going to have to go into your brain too. God does not bypass your your brain, your mind. He doesn't bypass that with the gospel. He actually, in fact, Paul also said to young Timothy, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is God's desire for the truth to be proclaimed so people can hear it. That's why... We, that's what we want to do. We want to give the gospel out. We want to tell the gospel. We want, to, we want to spread the gospel. Why? So people can hear it. Now, it doesn't mean when you tell it that they're going to respond to it the way you want to. God wants people. I mean, I want people to be saved, don't you? But every time I witness to somebody, sometimes it's like talking to that wall over there. Uh, I, you, know, you, you may have waxed eloquent. But it not there's no there, you didn't see any effect. But nonetheless, it's still God's will for you to pro- proclaim the truth so people hear it. That's how it must start. Right now, if you notice back in verse 13 of chapter 1, there's... Now, see, so you have to ask this too. What What have you done with what you have been hearing? Hopefully you have heard, and it leads to the next thing. It says in verse number 13 in the middle of the verse, it says, having also believed. See, the hearing leads to believing. So believing the gospel means to obey the message concerning of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is the Son of God, that he is God's own way of salvation, that God sent Jesus to the cross, and that God put all our sins on him and punished them in him. That being the gospel. So the question would be, okay, if you heard that, here's the question, do you believe that? People do what they believe. Have you received the free gift, the free offer of eternal salvation? I was just witnessing to a a man the other day at a funeral, and and he says, well, and I gave him the gospel. He says, that sounds too simple. It's got to be harder than that. I says, it's free. That's the way God planned it. That means there's no amount of works you can add to this or give to God to have salvation. You have to receive it. You have to hear it, and then you have to receive it. So, see, we cannot be Christians without having the conviction of sin, knowing that we're guilty before God and under his wrath. That must be there. See, the good news is that we can be delivered from the wrath to come. That's the good news that God has taken our sins, put them on His own Son, punished and dealt with him, them there. And so, therefore, that means, and this is the exciting part, that you can be part of God's saving plan that He planned in all eternity. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, if you will believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose to be your Lord and Savior, if you will trust Him, He will. Actually, you will. You'll be able to know God's eternal love and that that love has been set on you. So you'll be able to know that. And and that is the greatest thing ever to know. Matter of fact, to have our ears hear that truth, is the greatest thing that you and I will ever hear. That has weight to it. That has significance to it. That has truth to it. But the proclamation of the truth is not enough. The proclamation of the truth alone cannot save. And see, that brings me to verse number 13, because this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. The activity of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse number 13, it says, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, it is the Holy Spirit that brings the word of God with power to a person who is hearing it. It was Paul who loved the Thessalonian church and, and one of the reasons why he loved these people in Thessalonica is because man they when they heard the word of God bam, they just got saved they turned from their idols and they just got saved and trusted Christ and then immediately began to broadcast what they heard to the other regions and the Bible says that their witness has was sounded out through all the regions everywhere. And Paul said this to the Thessalonians when he wrote to them, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So no person can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the action of of the Holy Spirit of God. Before anyone can receive the message of truth, it is the Spirit of God that must quicken you. In fact, again in Ephesians chapter 2, if you notice in verse number 5, it says, e- Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Right? In other words, He made us. Alive. He quickened us. So faith, and how, how does that happen? We, it's not by works, but it's by faith. See, faith is something we do. Don't Don't misunderstand this. We do believe. When you hear the gospel and you start thinking about it in your heart, you do believe it, all right? And you do believe it by faith. So that's something you do, but it is not a work. Faith is God's gift. Through the Holy Spirit, for it says in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So God enables us to believe by the Holy Spirit of God. He enables us to do that. So without the Spirit's operation, we would remain dead in our trespasses and sins. We could have heard the gospel a hundred times. We could have even thought we believed it. But if the Spirit of God did not quicken you and make you alive unto, unto uh, God and given you the gift of faith, then you still remain dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, however, I want to say this, that God does not force our wills or compel us against our wills to believe the gospel. You don't find that in the Word of God. What God does do is this. He persuades our will. He makes the truth desirable and attractive to us so that we desire salvation like a thirsty person desires water or a hungry person desires food. That's what he does. And God, by the Spirit of God, does that. Matter of fact, the day you became a believer, I remember the day I became a believer, not looking for God, this is the thing that came into my mind, this is the truth and my search is over and I went and responded to the gospel now I didn't realize at that particular point that all the things that were going on behind the scenes I didn't realize that it was the spirit of God putting me in that place at that moment in another part of the world and having the word preached to me and I would respond in that way I was thought I was doing fine I would just say hey my friend says let's go to Bible study I went with them that was it there was no anything beyond that I wasn't looking for anything. I was not looking for God. But God was looking for me. And when he got my attention, and when I realized what happened, everything everything in my life changed. Now, how did wh- what happened? The Spirit of God changed me. Because the Spirit of God came into me. He indwelt me. And I didn't understand that at that particular point, but once I started learning the word of God, I started understanding what God was doing. And it was exciting. You know, one of Luke's most important messages in the book of Acts is that a person must have the Spirit in order to be a Christian. Must have the Spirit in order to be a Christian. So it must be the Spirit's activity in the life of a believer that makes them a Christian. Now, to further bolster this assurance that we are the children of God. Scripture unfolds for us more aspects of the Spirit's work that benefits us every single day and encourages us. And what are they? Look at verse, Look at the end of verse number 13. It says you have, it says having believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, it's saying to us that The person by which our inheritance is secured is the Holy Spirit himself. And, of course, one of the important aspects of the Spirit's work, which takes place at conversion, is the the Spirit seals a believer. The Holy Spirit is really, is the instrument of the seal. And um, in the ancient world, the owner announced his ownership by attaching his seal to his possessions. Sometimes when a king was sending a letter or a portent portent official was sending a letter, they would take the flap of the letter and they would pour wax on it and then he would take his signet ring or a seal and press it into the wax. Not that you couldn't break it open, but if the messenger delivered that letter with a broken seal, that guy was in trouble. The only one who could unseal that letter was the person to which it was addressed. All right? It was a seal by that man that this is my letter, this is my seal, and so you knew, knew it came from me, and nobody messed with it from the time that messenger left me to the time he arrived at your location, and you received it, and you broke the seal. See, it showed who who the ownership of, of that seal. And so in the ancient world, people would attach their seals to things to let people know what belonged to them. And that's what God has done for us. He tagged us. He has left his mark on us and in our hearts. And we who have the seal of God know it. See, the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in several places in Scripture, actually three places. There's another place in in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 22 no need to turn there but it says because it says almost the same thing who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our heart, hearts as a pledge and then of course again in Ephesians 4.20 which we're getting there it says do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption so see the seal indicates several things it indicates number one authenticity. That the seal is a kind of embossment on an official document to validate its genuine its 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 genuineness and it, that it is true. It's just like we put there's an embossment on your passport, uh, and today they put it under that special light so they can see all the stuff going on there, so they know it hasn't been messed with, right? And then in, on your birth certificate, you know, they say, "Well, no, I want—I don't want to copy your birth certificate. I want the one that has the raised seal on it, right?" You and I have always—we've heard that maybe at DMV lately, and because uh, we need our six points of identification now to make sure we are who we are, right? And even they do it—they want to know: Are you genuine? Are you John Doe? Who's—who's who's this represent? Are, are you real? Well. God says that I given the Spirit of God uh, and the Holy Spirit authenticates professing Christians as genuine. This is a genuine Son of God. God says that about you. His, the Spirit of God is the seal, so he authenticates us as being genuine believers. Secondly, it also means possession. A seal marks an object, objects, uh, an object, of one's property. Like a brand is put on cattle when they used to brand cattle uh, many uh, years. They, I guess they still do it today if you're in cattle country. All right? They have their own little signet on it. So if the cattle get all mixed up with other cattle, they say, well, this is mine. That's yours. That's mine because my seal's on it. And so, see, the Holy Spirit of God, actually what he does is that he certifies God's ownership of you. God owns you right? And if God owns you, who's going to, that's why Paul can say, there's no condemnation against those who are, what, elect, right? Who can stand against you as a believer? No one can. Why? Because God owns you, and nobody's going to mess with God's property. See, that that tells us something very important, that God wants us to know that not only we're believers and we're authentic, but we are his possession. We're his property, and we have his seal upon us and that seal of course is the spirit of God but it also means security it means believers preservation is certain and salvation is secure that the believer cannot be tampered with they are protected by the seal of the Holy Spirit of God and that becomes an encouragement to us but you know what sealing also stands for some other things too I already mentioned that it stands for ownership, that the sealing of the Holy Spirit is the work of God. Uh, the very moment we believe God, he puts his stand, stamp upon us, and we become his property. But it's also the sense of, and this is in the more practical sense, of likeness. If God puts his spirit in us, and this, it is the Holy Spirit of God, That means he's going to begin to sanctify us and set us apart so we become like Christ. There's going to be a likeness there that shows us that we have the sealing of the Holy Spirit of God. So the sealing with the Spirit is that once for all act that gives a constant assurance that we are God's children entitled to his riches, entitled uh, to his goodness, and of course now we are entitled to eternity. That's part of it. So our likeness to Christ will produce effects. That means if you are, if you have heard the gospel, if you have believed the gospel, if the Spirit of God sealed you, right, as God's own and God's own possession that means his seal and his indwelling you will produce effects in your life there will be effects in your life and there will also be observable effects of the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you and it was uh, Jonathan Edwards who summarized the proofs of the Holy Spirit marking us as God's own when he says that if you really want to know that you're sealed by God by God's Spirit, is certain things happen uh, as observable effects in your life. And here are some of the things he listed. Number one, you'll begin to exalt Jesus Christ. You'll begin to exalt Jesus Christ like you never have before. Secondly, you will repent of your sin. Not just initial repentance in conversion but you will repent regularly over your sin. Why? You're becoming holy. You're being set apart to God. There will be a regular pattern of repentance in your life. A third thing was, you will have a heightened interest in the Word of God. You will love the Word. The Word of God will become the most important document uh, piece of literature in your life. All Right? The Word of, is it? Is the Word of God uh, the most important piece of literature in your life? That's a mark of the Holy Spirit. That's a mark of being sealed by God. He puts that there. It's the Word of God that will grow us. And then, of course, he, there are more of them, but the, one of the last ones was you'll have a new love for God and for people. That will be evident. These will be observable effects in your life because the Spirit of God has sealed you. But there is another thing the Spirit of God Himself does is in verse number 14 of chapter 1. It says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, this word used here in the Greek is "arabon," and it means to deposit to put a down payment on, to put a pledge on. In other words, that this is a deposit that guarantees that all the rest will follow. And of course, the deposit here is the Spirit of God becomes the seal and guarantee of our salvation that we put a deposit on, on something like a house. And of course, we don't pay for everything on that house on that day. But when we put the deposit down, that deposit says we own that place and we promise that we're going to pay our mortgage every month. And of course, the banks are looking forward to that you keeping that promise. And, and so you pledged a certain amount of money and said that the rest of the money will come on a monthly basis, uh, month after month, until I pay it off. Well, God is saying, listen, I'm going to give you my possessions, my children, a deposit Uh, A down payment, a pledge that everything I have promised, I will keep. My agreement with you, all right, I will keep. All right, I will finish it. And so, therefore, if you notice what it says there, it says, with a view of the redemption of God's own possession, that Jesus Christ has purchased us for himself. And has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment that the redemption, which has been so wondrously begun in us, will be completed. The redemption will be completed. That's what he promises us. So there's going to be a first installment, and the Lord says, because I give this down payment, I will promise that everything I have said in the word of God concerning full salvation, full redemption, it will happen. It's coming. It's going to be yours. And see, so the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of the finished transaction and a safe delivery of our spirit, soul, and body to God's presence. Isn't that what we're looking forward to? We're looking forward to being in the presence of God. He says, well, this is what it does. In fact, you see, that if a person doesn't have the Spirit of God, this can't happen. If a person doesn't have the Spirit of God, they're not God's possession. They are not authentic believers. And they don't have the down payment that promises them full redemption. Right? They must have those things in order to secure full salvation. So, see, the Father devised the plan and He chose us. Christ set the plan in operation by shedding his blood. And the Holy Spirit of God causes people to be united to Christ by sealing believers with the Holy Spirit of promise until the day he redeems us his own possession. So the Spirit is the seal and guarantee that the believer will enter into his complete redemption in Christ Jesus. And that complete redemption is going to be at... The consummation of the plan of God, the return of Christ, I may say it like that. So, if you're discouraged by your weakness and your sin, then this should encourage you this morning. It should give you the understanding that I am a genuine believer, that I have seen the evidence of the work of God in my life, so I don't need to doubt my salvation. I need to now continue to grow in Christ and grow in the things God's given me. so And it should keep me pressing on in the Lord. It should keep my heart and mind in a state of readiness. So I praise God for what he has done and what he has called me to be and you to be. And so that's the way he ends verse number 14 again. If you notice that every time, each time the work of the Trinity is mentioned, that this is the posture that we're to take. And if you look at verse number 14, it says... He ends it again, to the, praise, to the praise of his glory. That's our posture. Knowing what the Lord has communicated to us, that it's only believers who have this understanding of what God has done. It should bring us to a place where we are in awe of what God has done. Yes, we do sense we don't deserve it, but we do. We are grateful that God has given it and we do take it very seriously very seriously very seriously we take it with great weight see this is what causes us to worship God when we think about this so see Paul is concerned about the doctrinal sections of scripture how are you going to live in this world if you don't know these things how are you going to witness in a dark world that is ruled by Satan if you don't Know this about yourself and about what God's done. How are you going to, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, he says, how are you going to be the father you ought to be to your children or the husband you ought to be to your wife? How is the wife going to submit to her husband unless she understands that you both are to submit to the head, Christ, and that these are the things God's given you both Uh, in your relationship and so therefore as you understand these things you submit to God first and therefore God works out what you can't work out by his spirit and his word in your life and he gives you a good marriage not a perfect one a good one he gives you a good understanding of where you are in Christ he gives you a good understanding about if you're on a job and you're uh, under a bad employee how do I respond to this bad employer you know, So God helps us to understand living in this world how to live for him in a way that you are strong in your faith. That you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He's going to say that in chapter 2, right? Or chapter 4. So we're not messed up uh, in that way but we're strong, we're firmly rooted. Why? Because we have taken the truth of God's word and thought seriously about it. It's the most important thing that I need to know because God says it, right? And believe me, when you do that, you will become firm in your faith. You will become a strong believer. You will not be tossed about. You will be somebody who knows what they believe, why they believe it, where it is in the word of God, and even be able to communicate it to someone who doesn't understand it. That's what you're going to be able to do. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for your great truth. Lord, we don't deserve to understand these things or hear these things, but I am so grateful that you give them to us. I pray this morning, Lord, you can use your word in a way that I could never imagine. And I pray that you would do that today, that if there is someone here that, Lord, you do not, uh, that does not know you, I pray today would be the day that they call upon you and, and ask you to save them. I pray, Lord, if there are believers here that didn't know these truths before, but today they do, I pray this would be the, another step in their journey in this world to become more Christ-like, to become more firm in the faith, to realize how important the Word of God is and how their relationship with the Holy Spirit is significant. That everything you say has weight to it, Lord. And I pray that it would bring us to the place that when we worship you, we don't worship you with an empty head. We worship you with a head full of understanding. We worship you with a heart that has been affected by the truth and a will that has been moved by your truth. I pray that for us. And I pray, Lord, that when we worship, it would be genuine from our heart because of what you've done and who we are, and what you called us to be. And so, Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for this vast and great and glorious plan. Thank you that you've included us in it. And now, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's table, let us make our minds ready to partake of the elements that just simply tell us that the centrality of our faith is the cross of Christ. His death And his shed blood that secured our salvation forever. And I pray that we would worship you based on these truths. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.